The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Dr. David Ross Marin. He is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, a program director at McLean Hospital, and founder of Center for Anxiety. He's an international expert on spirituality and mental health, and his work has been featured in Scientific American, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. His new book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You, is featured in the November-December 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. David, welcome to the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, I hope it'll be fun to to have a conversation. The book was really interesting. I don't know if our, you know, how many of our listeners are you know, wrestling with anxiety, but when they hear how you understand anxiety, they're either going to be very happy because you're going to teach them how to thrive with it, or they're going to start to have anxiety because they didn't have enough anxiety to thrive with in the first place. Well, statistically, a good number of listeners do have anxiety. The numbers are pretty high today. And I definitely do have a different perspective on it. And it is a positive one. I do think people are often better off having anxiety than not having it. So I think there's a lot of truth to that. Well, I mean, you say right in the beginning of the book, I'm just going to read this little half sentence, anxiety itself is not a problem and nothing is wrong with you for having anxiety. So a lot of people should be going, that's a good thing. But what what are the numbers? What are the numbers? For an anxiety disorder, which is when anxiety gets the better of people and it's causing significant distress or impairment, take a guess. <laughs> Not to uh, be anxious. All right, seventy-five to 80%. Okay, so it's less than that. So no, the number, the number of first, like we're talking clinical anxiety is probably about 25% of Americans in any given year. That's oh, all. Oh, I was I was talking about my family. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can't speak to that. <laughs> So 25% of Americans are suffering from actual anxiety clinical disorder. Anxiety. Yeah, Cl- clinical, clinical anxiety. anxiety. And I think the main, main reason is because we've turned anxiety into something that we feel we have to get rid of. Right when we start to feel anxious, you know, no, most people are not kibitzing about it, so to speak. We're not joking about it. Most people think something's wrong with me or something's wrong with the situation or this is going to last forever or this is going to overwhelm me. This might even kill me. And that catastrophization and that judgment of ourselves that's where things go really awry. And if we reframe anxiety as a normal, healthy human emotion, which is really true, we have a very different relationship with it and that can actually add a lot to our lives. So should we make a distinction between the 25% who are experiencing, I mean, what's the, what, what, what's the clinical name for it? Is it just anxiety disorder? Is yeah, that- I think that works. So 
as are you are you really talking to them or are you talking to the 75% who get anxious or or you know I don't know what the non-clinical term would be and then start talking themselves into having a stroke great question the answer is everybody i'm actually speaking all to all of them and even i've seen patients you know i've, I've been in the trenches mclean hospital is in a very fine, wonderful place. And we see some really acute patients who need inpatient care. Center for Anxiety is an outpatient facility where people are living their lives and coming for therapy once or twice a week. And then there's people who know don't need treatment at all. The methods in the book and framing anxiety as a positive is something that really applies across the board to all of those individuals. Okay. So I, I'm going to mix my words here and then you can clarify them and then that'll help people understand this better. Are people anxious about something in particular or is it just sort of free-floating anxiety? It could be either. In many cases, the initiation of the anxiety is something particular. It could be stress. It could be that you're having a, I don't know, a financial crunch during a certain month. It could be that somebody's going through a health crisis or simply that you're running late to work or that you got a lot of projects running. Or it could be something more free-floating. I'm worried about the weather. I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about just health and the future in general. Whatever the impetus or whatever the cause of the anxiety, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what we do with it afterwards. Do we use this to strengthen our self-compassion? Does it turn us into more kind, caring people towards ourselves? Does it, care, does it change our relationships with others? And given the topic that we're here to discuss, does it change our spirituality in some way? And I think those are where the opportunities lie independent of the origination of the anxiety. So we're, we're going to go into some depth about, you know, what do you do with the anxiety? Because, you know, you, you draw on cognitive behavior therapy. But it seems to me if, and this is just me, if I'm anxious about X, a definable thing, so I've got you know, a lump that I'm worried about, or or there's a specific financial problem that I'm dealing with, or or anything I can say, if someone says, what are you anxious about? And I go, oh, it's a problem in our relationship. It's a mm -hmm. health problem. And I know what it is. That seems to me less, I don't know, threatening, less existentially threatening than I don't know. I wake up and I'm freaked out by the fact that I woke up and I stay in this anxious state all day, but I can't tell you what's what's making me anxious. I'm alive and I'm anxious and I go to sleep and I'm, you know, maybe my dreams are expressed even. It's just this free-floating anxiety about life. That, and maybe, again, it's just me, that just seems to be far more you know, actually physically deadly, but far and but also far more spiritually challenging and psychologically challenging than, well, I'm anxious over the fact that I'm in arrears on my bills or something. Well, pardon me for donning my psychotherapist hat over here, but you know, people tend to get anxious about that which they value the most in life. Wow. And for you know, I'm speaking here to to a rabbi. So the fact that, you know, existential fears and threats would be the biggest thing you know, to, to get your blood pressure going, I think that says a lot about, you know, you as a person. And that probably originates from your fact that spirituality is something which is so central to you. And I think a lot of your listeners might resonate with that. However, for many people, uh, I mean, I've had phobic patients who will not get in an elevator. And that fear of heights is so visceral. It is so raw. It is so dangerous. It is, 
they are unmoored to the to the to the nines. It is watching them and helping them face those fears is terrifying. It's it's a very like I said, raw experience. So I don't know if it's less or more, you know, I think in some ways specific phobias could even be more intense. But nevertheless, the point remains, people get anxious about, you know, that which they care about. Yeah, that okay, okay. I wasn't thinking in terms of a phobia like fear of heights or or, you know, getting in an elevator or and, speaking in public. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to me, if if, you know, I'm I'm not a doctor, but if someone came to me and said, you know, I have fear of elevator and I say, well, that's what escalators are for. <laughs> you know, something like that. But you know, there's some things you can just avoid doing. Do you live in um, Los Angeles? I used to. That's probably where that one comes from. So New York, <laughs> less of an option. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I got to have a meeting on the 50th floor of some, yeah, the Chrysler building. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'll take the stairs. Thank you. Good luck. <laughs> no, it can really be debilitating. You know, I've had, I've had a lot of CEOs who came in and uh, they can't fly. They will take the train. I've had patients take the train from you know New York to Chicago. It's it's like two days, um, or even longer to Florida. I had someone who you know like took a, put their car on a train and met met their family down there, and you know yeah. really it, it can be very debilitating. These these small, so to speak, fears are are actually quite large when they interfere with a person's life. Okay, so anxiety is a real thing. It can be debilitating, but and you've said this a couple of times. I don't know if you use these, this term, but but you can reframe it. You can you can approach it in a different way. Where, and and you've already said you, you become anxious over what really matters to you. So you can reframe it in a certain way. That and, and again, I'm just going to quote something back to you that I thought was really eye opening. Let's say you say anxiety is an indication that we have a reservoir of inner strength to face adversity in in the world. I just want to say it again so people get what you're saying. Anxiety is an indication that we have a reservoir of inner strength to face adversity in the world. I would have thought, before I read the book, that it was an indication that I don't have a, I'm helpless. (laughs) But you're saying the opposite. It's an indication that we have a reservoir of inner strength to face adversity in the world, and it can thereby help us to lead and succeed. So, Expand on that a little bit, because that was just, I read it and went, whoa, that really turns it on its head. You know, a lot of pe- people, when they come in, they say, anxiety is bigger than me and I can't, I can't overcome this. I'm never going to be able to. And once they see that it actually is possible, I mean, we, I was mentioning before about uh, specific phobias. So we'll just stick with that example, because it's very simple and kind of convenient. Um, although this does apply to more complicated forms of anxiety as well. When you know an individual comes in and they can't handle whether it's snakes, spiders, flying, like we said, heights, they actually do possess the ability to overcome those fears. And when they do, that creates an incredible sense of inner strength and accomplishment that they can carry over into other areas of their life. The whole reason the anxiety is happening in the first place, in fact, is because they're acutely aware of the risks more than other people. Because the truth is, if you're in an elevator, like things could happen. <laughs> and you know, people who have a fear of them actually are a little bit more tapped into reality. That awareness, when we don't let the anxiety get in the way, that awareness, once we've pushed through the fear, 
can be a huge catalyst to be more aware of other stressors and being able to be on top of them. There's an umpteen, unbelievable number of successful people in the world who have anxiety and they use it because it helps them to stay on top of the details, the myriad details that they need to manage their complicated lives. So once we overcome it and once we get that lift from building resilience through facing it, it can become a tremendous strength. And that's what I meant. So I don't know if this fits, but you mentioned earlier about public speaking. So, I mean, that's what I do for a living. And when I was learning how to do this, I mean, you get nervous and it's, sure. I don't know if it's the second most terrifying thing for the majority of people is to speak in public. Sure. And I think, but death is the first one. And, and so, I mean, the worst thing would be to die and then have to give your own eulogy. That would really kill people. <laughs> but, but if, you know, so, so even for someone like me, who's professionally trained to do it, you know, taking theater classes and speech classes and all, you still get anxious. And what I was taught is, thank goodness you're anxious. Otherwise, you're phoning it in. And, you know, you want to use that anxiety to stay on your toes and to do the best job you can. And what I have learned to do is to pay attention to what I'm doing, not to second guess what I'm doing, but to pay attention to what I'm doing and look for the first screw up and notice that I got through it. And maybe no one else even noticed it, but I, but I made a mistake. I, I mispronounced something. I lost my place, whatever it happens to be. But I I, I dropped the ball, but I picked up the ball and I kept moving forward. Notice how I got through it. And then that that energy can be channeled into, okay, well, I can move forward with it, with this now. It's not, the, the anxiety isn't in any way debilitating after that. So is that similar to what you're saying? Yeah. Sounds like you learned how to thrive with your public speaking anxiety and it ended up parlaying that skill into into your career, which is exactly, you know, case example in the book. I should, had I known you when I was writing it, I would have put you in there. Well, I think you should call the publisher, withdraw the book ah. from the shelves, rewrite it, and give a chapter just to me. Now you're making me anxious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so, so let, let's talk about your reference to cognitive behavioral therapy. Sure. We're going to be talking with Dr. Norman Rosenthal. Sure. And, do you know him? Sure I do. He's actually oh. a friend of my father. <laughs> really? Send me my regards. <laughs> okay. I'll try to remember to do that. Now I'm anxious. Oh my goodness. We have to make a note. So his new book is called Defeating SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. And yeah. he also references cognitive behavioral therapy. So I think that CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, came from or, or was popularized by Albert Ellis. Is that right? Albert Ellis is one of the folks. I think Aaron Beck probably takes the prize. Okay. Um, so yeah. my, my claim to fame is that I, I learned it from Albert Ellis and because okay. I'm old. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I took a seminar with Albert Ellis and I learned a little bit about it. And, and this is what I got out of him, that what, what they're saying is, is that my anxiety doesn't come from the situation I'm dealing with, Correct. but from my feelings uh, or thoughts about the Thought. situation. Correct. So when I get up in the morning and I get on the scale and, I mean, I don't like the number, it, it's the number is the number, mm -hmm. but it's my my feeling about that. Oh my God, it's, it's too high. You know, I'd look at the number and I would 
you know, have anxiety over my weight. And, and I'm in 12-step program for compulsive eating, and I've got all these food issues. Okay. But the truth is, the number's the number. But it's my emotional reaction, my, my thinking around it that really matters. So what you have to change is your thoughts and your feelings. But you can't do that directly. So you do it indirectly by changing your behavior. Am I on the right track? Yeah, you explained cognitive behavior therapy quite well. That's great. Okay, so now I'm just going to take you on a tangent just for a second, because I've also explained something called Morita therapy. You familiar with that? I've heard of it, sure. So that's a Japanese therapy. I don't know when Beck started CBT, but Morita, I think, comes from the 50s or 60s. Uh, Morita is the, the psychologist in Japan who created this thing, but it was accept your feelings, sing your thoughts, but accept your feelings, know your purpose, and do what you have to do to accomplish your purpose. And don't try to fix your feelings. And that seems to be similar to what you're saying regarding anxiety. So give us some idea of how we can work our behavior. How Because I think that's, that's going to be a challenge for people. To, to be able to say to themselves, okay, your thoughts are your thoughts, your feelings are your feelings, leave it alone. What can I do to change my, uh, my mindset about the situation? Yeah, I think there are a number of things. You know, In some ways, a lot of the book is predicated on the principles of cognitive and behavior therapy, although it, it comes up the most in part one, um, part one of three. The first thing, when people feel anxious, they tend, we tend, to judge ourselves. What's wrong with me? I can't believe this is happening. I'm so weak. I'm the weakling in the room. You know, I can't believe I'm stressed out over this. You know, everyone else seems to be doing so great today. Why can't I be stronger? And all of that chatter, that self-deprecating chatter, are thoughts. And those thoughts fan the flames of anxiety. They make those feelings so much more intense. Literally, at a, at a neural level, they, they activate a fear circuit. They activate a brain, your brain's fear circuit, which triggers adrenaline. That actually increases adrenaline into your bloodstream, which cascades the anxiety process. So you are directly, physiologically, causing the anxiety to become worse. This afternoon, I had a session with one of my patients, one of my favorite patients, and she was having very significant physical symptoms, and she has some obsessive thoughts about these, and it makes her very anxious. And then she was judging herself. I can't believe I did it again. I slipped into anxiety. I've been dealing with this for so long. Why am I so obsessive? It's my fault. And all of those thoughts, you can imagine what that did to her obsessions. They took them up 10 notches. And she was in such a tizzy at the beginning of our session. And simply by noticing, of being aware, and most of all, becoming more self-compassionate behaviorally, you know, being self-compassionate means giving to yourself when you don't deserve it. And being kind when you don't deserve it, when you don't feel that you deserve it, I should say, is such a great tool to be able to reset and get us into a different spiral where anxiety is actually teaching us to become more kind to ourselves, to others, and more understanding. And when we do that, then the impetus of anxiety becomes actually the, the effect of it can be very wonderful and help us to thrive as opposed to descending into that abyss 
of terror and aloneness and isolation. So she found that helpful? Yeah. By the end of the session, she was in a very different place. She actually said, I am done. Like, I'm just, I'm done obsessing with this. And, I, and between me and you, I'm not sure that's true. I think she'll probably stumble and fall into it again, just because it's such a well-trod neural pathway for this young woman. But I do think she finally got it. And she has been spinning her wheels for about two or three weeks. I don't think, I think she's going to end off this cycle and be moving in the right direction going forward. Yeah, I do. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I remember in the seminar I took with Albert Ellis, I I, I don't remember the details, but it was every time... you got trapped in one of these downward spirals. He said, pull out a $20 bill and tear it up. <laughs> I mean, right. that was supposed to keep you from doing it. it, it I changed classes. I, guess, <laughs> I, I can't afford to do this. I'll go to a Freudian. It's got to be cheaper. So, <laughs> yeah, but, but what you're saying is, I think, very helpful. So I, I, I want to switch because you, you brought it up earlier and certainly this is spirituality and health. We want to talk about spirituality and sure. your book deals with it directly. You have a very brief definition of spirituality. You call it the search for the sacred. Um, and then you say that that search involves transcending the material world. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about that because defining spirituality as the search for the sacred sort of begs the question, then what's the sacred? So, so expand on your, your definition of spirituality. Tell us what you have in mind when you talk about the search for the sacred. It's a great question. You know, my, my sense is probably better to put some meat on the bone here and to sort of give you more of like a case to really highlight what this, what this actually means. Right. You know, most people, when they are actualizing them, themselves, when they're engaging in the process of self-actualization, when we have a big dream, this is the way I think the world should be. This is my vision for the world, for myself, for my family, for my community, for whatever it is. And we strive towards that goal. Typically, we hit roadblocks along the way, and we are going to experience anxiety and stress and some sort of a depletion of resources against the demands that we face. Because if you have a dream, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to actualize it. It's going to be tough where the rubber meets the road to implement it and to make it real. Anxiety is a normal, healthy process for anybody who is looking deep into their soul and saying, hey, the world should be this way. I was brought in the world for a reason. Here I am. In this time, in this location, this geolocation, I see that there's, you know, I'm in the medical field. So when I walk into the hospital, I'm like, okay, like who needs help and how are we going to do this? And who are my colleagues that need collaboration on this, that, or the other? And I'm, I have a vision, I have a goal, goals for how I can make the world a better place in very many different ways. And those cause me stress and anxiety. And that's a great thing. And when I face that anxiety and I use it to motivate me and to stay on top of my game, 
that's about that's a spiritual thriving in my view because it allows us to have something greater to have a greater meaning greater sense of meaning greater sense of purpose a greater sense of accomplishment and that's really being transcendent in our minds with our feet squarely on the ground so that's an interesting way to think of transcending the material world so you're transcending it while your feet are firmly on the ground yeah right yeah, yeah. i mean so it's not like transcending it that the world is not real the world is i've, I've left the world behind because i was i read the statement and i thought well if i transcend the material world that's going to include my body so uh, Where's the anxiety? I have no anxiety because I've trained, you know, and I, I worked with a lot of, of Hindu teachers in the sure. Advaita tradition where, in a, in a sense, the material world isn't real in, in that sense. And, and you can reach a level of consciousness where things are happening, but you're not really attached to them. And so there is no anxiety because you're, you're sort of above the whole thing. I, I'm not really doing it justice. That's a very cheap way of putting it. But there's but you've transcended suffering, you've transcended anxiety because there's no real self that's dealing with this. It's just the world is happening, which I want to get to in a second, because you talk about that in a way. So but your your sense of of transcending the material world is sort of I'm I'm gonna, you know, play editor for a second. So really it's it's growing bigger than just the material world, as opposed to transcending and leaving it behind. Yes. And I would even go one step further, though. When we do that and push beyond our limits and actualize our potential and our vision, what we realize is actually how little control we have over the circumstances of life. Because when somebody's flying a plane, like you can, don't do this, but ask a pilot, <laughs> how many things could go wrong? on takeoff, in the air, and on landing. And if they're, I mean, probably they won't tell you unless you know, get them, give them a drink or two, but if you actually get them talking, it's pretty scary what could actually go wrong. And yes, they are trained, and yes, there are safeguards, and yes, there are all sorts of things. And, you know, look at the FAA record. I mean, you know, thankfully there hasn't been, you know, any major catastrophes in US, with U.S. carriers for, I don't know how many decades at this point. But at the same time, the more effort that we extend, the more ex expend, expend rather, the more effort that we put in to realizing our dreams, the more we realize how much actually is not up to us. And I think there's an aspect of transcendence there where we're really acting out physically our dreams and our goals in day-to-day -day life with in facing our anxiety and sort of in some ways leaving that behind because we realize that at the end of the day, we're going to give it all. and it's, you know, what actually ends up happening is beyond human control. There's a humility that can settle, settle in with that, which is really what thriving with anxiety is about. Well, that, that leads me to my next question. And based on how much time we've got left, it'll be my last question. But you've got a chapter called Knowing Our Limits. Yeah. And in the chapter, you give a, an example. You're talking to a group of students at Harvard College. Yeah, sure. And you tell them that they don't have a lot of agency in the world, that the most important factors of their existence are beyond their control, which is just what you said. And it's not just flying an airplane. 
not I, I'm making the number up, but 99.999% of everything that that happens with me. I don't I don't like to say to me, but everything that happens with me in a given day, I had nothing to do with. Right. You know, I'm just part of this incredibly complex mix and I'm, you know, I play my my little part. When so so what's your sense of free will? In, <laughs> when when most of, and and you have 20 seconds. What what's your sense of free will when the vast majority of things that are happening are beyond your control? It's a great question. I do cover it somewhat in the book in more than 20 seconds, which is that whether, when, and where to be born are beyond my pay grade. But wherever I was delivered and wherever I do exist, there is a modicum of choice that I can and hopefully always will choose to use in my life. How's that? Okay. 20 seconds. That, that, that was 20 seconds. But, but you're also saying, because, I mean, you said it in, the, on the, in this conversation, you don't, you don't, your thoughts and your feelings just sort of pop into your head. You know, there's, there's people who will come up and say, you don't have to think negative thoughts. You can only think positive thoughts. You don't have to think, you don't have to feel negative feelings. You can have only positive feelings. That's crap. I agree. Because by the time you've thought, by the time you know you're thinking a negative thought, you thought it. By the time you know you're having a negative feeling, you're feeling it. You don't choose that. It just 100%. happens. Fully right? agree. The question is what happens next? Do you what turn happens next? Something? What happens Exactly. Next? And that's, that's where and I'm telling you your business, but that's where your book comes in. That's where thriving with anxiety comes in because you're not, because if you said, well, there's nothing you can do, well, then, you know, I'll take the elevator up to the top floor once and I'll take the window way out. So, because <laughs> there's nothing I can do. But you're saying, if I follow you right, that no, you can, you can take the anxiety of riding the elevator and use it in a positive way. 100%. You're still going to be anxious. Yeah, it's not going to be fun, but it can be productive and healthy and actually a very elevated experience. Oh, jeez. Okay, we're going to, I'm assuming that was on purpose. <laughs> that, there, but yeah, very, and you made it to the 50th floor and you didn't have a heart attack because you didn't have to walk all the way up. This is really interesting. There is so much more in this book. If you're, you know, if people are listening and they're interested in anxiety and dealing with their anxiety and the anxiety of, of people they care about, this is, is really a great book. But unfortunately, David, we're going to have to leave it here. Our guest today, Dr. David Rossmarin, is the author of Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. His book is featured in the November-December 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about his work at his website, dhrosemarin.com. And I just want to thank you, David, for joining us on the Spirituality Health Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Spirituality Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everybody at Spirituality and Health Magazine, we thank you for your support.
I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.